Good morning. Good morning. Good. I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn to the book of John, John chapter 18. And as you make your way over to the book of John, John chapter 18, I'd like to let you know that we have the latest and greatest uh, church directory. and appreciate all the work that went into this. Mrs. Knopf did a great job. Uh, but she... Uh, there's something wrong in here, I can guarantee you. It's not because something she did. It's because something you did. Because she made sure, she tried to make sure everything was just right. And so I appreciate that. You can pick these up at the check-in table. And you're welcome to have one. We will not sell your information. And uh, so if you'd like to have one of those, uh, you can pick one of those up at the check-in table. And uh, appreciate you doing that. All right, well, John chapter 18 this morning, and uh, we'll be reading several verses, kind of jumping into the middle of uh, something here, but John chapter 18, starting in verse number 28, where the word of God records, then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. The saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. This end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me now to effectively communicate those things you have impressed upon my heart. I pray that today truth would prevail in somebody's heart, in somebody's life, in my heart, in my life. God, I pray that you would touch this message this morning. We're counting on you. We're counting on the power of thy word. We're counting on the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're looking for you, Jesus. Help us to see you high, holy, and lifted up. Help us to take from this place something that would teach us 
to live more soberly, more righteously, more godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. What is truth? That is the question which the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, asked Jesus in exasperation of events which would ultimately lead to Christ's crucifixion. Pilate, as we read the other Gospels and we put all of it together, knew in his heart that Jesus had been delivered up by the Jews for all the wrong reasons. This conclusion of the matter is recorded in John chapter 18 and verse number 38 when he stated, I find in him no fault at all. And In another one of the Gospels we see that at this moment he took a basin of water and he washed his hands of the matter. On top of his frustration lay the fact that Pilate lived in an extremely philosophical culture which was dominated by theoretical rhetoric. It was the age of the Epicureans and the Stoics, and there's something recorded of it in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 21, where Luke, under the divine inspiration of God, wrote, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there in Athens spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So Pilate was frustrated politically. He was frustrated culturally, philosophically. This was frustrated when he made that statement, what is truth, when he asked the question. The question, what is truth, is really an inquiry that addresses authority, the authority for the source of truth. What one sees as the basis of truth will determine how they view everything else, including how they develop their system of belief. Therefore, the basis for authoritative truth becomes a key issue in everybody's life at one time or another. Throughout the ages, differing opinions regarding the basis for truth have been the cause of much doctrinal confusion and divisional conflict. There are three basic concepts which have formed the bedrock upon which various thinkers have built their systems of belief. And this is, these are my observations in 28 years of ministry and studying the Word of God and reading history and so forth. But there's really only three that I think we can break it down to. The first one is this, if you're taking notes. Uh, some have built their beliefs on tradition. Some have built their beliefs on uh, what other people have said. This is the way that we do it. Now, tradition has its place. By the way, the title for this message for the guy that needs to hear this is, What is Truth? <laughs> what is Truth? John 18, verses 28 through 38. But some have built their system of belief on tradition. Tradition, now, I, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Tradition does have its place. As a matter of fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, it's recorded that Paul wrote to the saints at Thessalonica, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. So, tradition does have its place. It's not the, it's not the great evil it's just not the place where we ought to get our authoritative truth from. 
I'll try to explain that as we go on here in the next few minutes. There's certainly nothing wrong with considering what has traditionally been accepted for, for matters of faith and practice. I remember one man saying that if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's probably not new, right? And so sometimes we might look at something and, and realize that there is a reason why things are done a certain way, and the fact is they might even be based on biblical principle. So tradition has its place. However, those who trust tradition as the basis for their spiritual reality are relying on the hierarchy or counsel of mortal men who speak on matters of faith, religion, morality, and things like that. So when that happens, when, when somebody trusts on tradition as the basis for their spiritual reality, and, and they're trusting on the councils and the hierarchy of what mortal men have said ought to be our faith, ought to be our practice, ought to be our religion, ought to be our morality, that often results in a contradictory outcome which must be rationalized. Then they have to make a new law. Then they have to make a new reason. Then they have to rationalize things. And that is the source for truth. Therefore, tradition must be esteemed too low an authority for the basis of truth. Some have built their belief system on human experience. The rational mind is a gift from God, absolutely, positively is. Thus, some see it as the basis for the authority of truth. For these, rationalism becomes the final presupposition against which all other claims of truth are judged. With this, the inner experience is viewed as the final authority. It becomes uh, the judge of the final word and raises such questions as, is God fact or is he abstract? Is the existence of God based on verifiable concrete observation or does God only exist as a theoretical idea? The existence of God has been the subject of debate for thousands of years and statistics always indicate that the number of skeptics is always on the rise, has always been that way. Now that should, shouldn't surprise us. What if God tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know him, because the things of God are spiritually discerned. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, the Word of God says, If our gospel be hid, and by the way, it wasn't hidden, but uh, Paul told King Agrippa, King Agrippa, you know the truth. This thing wasn't done in the corner. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. We must understand that the natural tendency of the fallen human heart is to blindfold itself when it comes to God. Why? Because if we can eliminate God, then there is no accountability as to how we live. There will be no one to judge us in the end, no one but ourselves to determine our eternal fate. So the human mind willingly blinds itself to the existence of God. Rationalism paves the way for empiricism. For the empiricist, only that which can be experienced by the human senses is real or factual. 
Many today believe that because God cannot be seen with the human eye or heard with the human ear, that he cannot be placed into the realm of fact. Now, it used to be that people used to be interested in the facts, and they would take the facts, and then they would wrestle with facts as to their beliefs. Today, it's difficult to even have a discussion with people about God because they have preemptively taken him out of the realm of fact and placed him into the category of value. I found this to be true in my own life, that, that skeptics and scorners do not necessarily have a problem with someone who believes in God as a value for their lives, but they consider it wrong for them to promote something as facts which they see as non-factual. That's what their problem with it is. This is why there's been such an effort to remove God from the public forum. The name of Jesus is seemingly banned from public conversation and labeled politically incorrect because the Lord Jesus Christ to them is simply a, a value rather than a fact. And the skeptic views all God talk as nonsensical and thus non-factual. Therefore, God is not in all their thoughts. But we find still in this, because there's a lot of danger in trusting in the human experience, we find that there is a place for the human experience in helping to determine what truth is. I think every person ought to have a, a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, you can't totally throw it out the window. It's part of, of our makeup. Matter of fact, God welcomes reasoning. Doesn't it say in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God welcomes reason. It was Paul's practice, the Apostle Paul, as he preached the gospel of Christ, to, to reason with humanity. In Acts chapter 17, verse number 2, the word of God says, as his manner was, he went into unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. In chapter 18 of the book of Acts, it talks about Paul, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and Greeks. Verse 19 of the same chapter says, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. In Acts chapter 24 and verse number 25, the word of God says, and as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, he was speaking to Felix, the Roman procurator of Judea. And Felix is trembling and he says to Paul, go thy way for this time when I have convenient season. I'll call for thee. But he reasoned with Felix. He reasoned with those who stood on Mars Hill and worshipped every god that you can imagine. They even had one altar that was set up to the unknown god. Paul reasoned with them. So the human experience has its place, does it not? But the faults of humanity are, are well known. And even though one may have had a vital, personal, existential encounter with God, and even though one may uh, empirically reason that there is a God and identify who that God is, the human experience cannot be trusted as an authoritative source for truth can't be. So that brings us to the last thing. That is this. Some have built their belief system solely on the Word of God. The Latin for it is sola scriptura. The practice of basing one's faith solely on the authority of the Word of God 
is not the position of weak minds. Those that practice basing one's faith solely on the authority of the Word of God is for critically thinking people who recognize the absurdities of building one's faith on the words of men or the personal experience or human understanding. Critically thinking minds will always arrive at this conclusion. That my human experience is unreliable. I can't base authoritative truth on my human experience. I cannot base my uh, authoritative truth on what somebody else has said. And by the way, I hope that when I covered that section talking about tradition, that our minds didn't automatically just jump to some established religion. Some people do not have an established religion. Listen, we'll get to this in a minute, but everybody believes something, and they got that belief from somewhere. They got it from somewhere. They they either got it from something they heard from somebody else, or they got it from a personal experience that they had, or they get it from the Word of God. Now, we've asked the question. Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And the Word of God answers that question. Very simply, John chapter 17, we see recorded the greatest prayer of all the ages. It's the real Lord's Prayer. It's a, a prayer that was recorded. The words of Christ are recorded there. In verse number 17, Jesus answers the question, what is truth, when he makes this statement, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is the complete revelation of God to man. It is unequivocal, logical, and unquestionable truth. Traditions change and human experience varies, but the Word of God is a fixed point of reference. It cannot change. It cannot be changed. It will not change. I hope you understand that. Now the argument might be, well, Men have changed it as they've translated it from one language to the next. Well, if that is the case, what I just said is still true, that the Word of God, even if it has been translated wrong, the Word of God cannot change. It cannot be changed, and it will not change. Psalm chapter 119, verse 30 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Now, I believe what we have in the King James translation is God's preserved word for English-speaking people. If you speak English, if English is your heart language, then this is God's preserved word for, for you. That's my personal conviction. It really is a matter of three things as we talk about the Word of God. It's a matter of inspiration. We believe that All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I had a conversation with an artist this week. He's a world-renowned artist. If you Google his name, he comes up on the internet. He's like the real deal. World-renowned. He's won all kinds of crazy awards. And and you'd be surprised if I told you who it was. I had a conversation with him. I was talking about the Word of God. I was talking about this very thing about the inspiration of the scriptures because we were having a spiritual conversation. And Well, I know that, uh, you know, the original languages, the, 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 uh, those things aren't around anymore, the, the original manuscripts, and he's right, he's correct about that. There's fragments, but there's no original manuscripts. They've been destroyed. 
I said, well, we believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. And I said that all Scripture is given by inspiration. I explained inspiration to him. He said, yeah, I know, I know what you mean about inspiration. I've had these out-of-body experiences. It's almost like I'm standing over my own shoulder as I'm painting something, as I'm, as I'm creating something. I said, eh, it's not like that. Word inspiration in 2 Timothy 3.16 is a word, a Greek word, the theonoustos. It's God-breathed. Somebody say, men, men, men wrote the Bible. No, they didn't write the Bible. God wrote the Bible. He used men to do it. It's a lot like this pen. I, this is probably a, a base illustration or, or example. Do you know if I was to take and sign my name at the top of this, of my notes here? There it is. Some might say, the same people who say, well, men wrote the Bible would be the same people that would say, well, your pen wrote, the, wrote your signature. Well, no, it didn't. I used the pen to do it. That's how God wrote his word. See, these men that we read about that wrote under the divine inspiration of God were the, were the pen in God's hand. As God spoke, they wrote. It was something that that is different. It's God breathed. They, they could do nothing. They had no power in them until God plugged into them and they were plugged into God and they wrote as the Spirit of God moved them to write. It's the very Word of God. We believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures. We also believe in the preservation of the Scriptures. You need to know this, Christian. It's so important that you know these things because you, you'll, this will equip you to talk with those that don't understand these things. But as it comes to the Word of God and the Word of God being settled in heaven forever, it's a basis of inspiration. All Scripture was given by inspiration of God. It's a, it's a basis of preservation. In Psalm chapter 12, in verses 6 and 7, the Word of God says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, His words, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. We believe, just as strongly as we believe that, that God was powerful enough to give us His Word, we believe that God is powerful enough to preserve His Word. We believe that from the, those Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek languages, God is powerful enough to translate that into English and for us to have the very Word of God in our heart language, in the English language, by the way of preservation, inspiration and preservation. And there's one more. If God is powerful enough to give us His Word, if God is powerful enough to, uh, to preserve His Word, we certainly believe that God is powerful enough to illuminate His Word. Do we not? Remember the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, how He met up with two of the disciples, and they were fretting and talking about what had just taken place of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they're, they're trying to figure things out, and He's talking with them, and uh, they, they make it to Emmaus and he would have made his way like he was going to uh, keep on going and they invited him to stay and have supper and spend the night. Jesus sat down and he talked with them. They were having supper and as they were eating, he broke bread. The Bible says in Luke chapter uh, 24 that then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. You see, we believe that about God. We believe that the, the Word of God is settled forever in heaven. It's settled forever and we can have that confidence because of inspiration, because of preservation, and because of illumination. 
God is powerful enough to give man his word. God is powerful enough to preserve his word. God is powerful enough to illuminate his word to those who will. God reveals himself redemptively through Christ in the eternal scriptures. 1 Peter 1.23 tells us that the believer is born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And so we have those three things. Those three things, those three ways people build their system of belief, either by tradition, words of men, by personal experience, by the word of God. Now, now listen, this is the conclusion. We all believe something. Everybody everywhere believes something. Even if you don't believe in God, you believe in something. I hope that this message goes far and wide and reaches to the uttermost. But if you're watching, if you're listening, if you're here in the building today, if you're tuning into this later and picking this up somewhere else, I promise you, you believe something. And you base that belief on one authority or another. What do you believe? What authority is your belief based on? Is it based on the changing opinions of man? Is it based on the unreliability of human experience? Or is it based on the unchanging, unalterable Word of God? According to some estimates, there are over 4,000 systems of belief in the world today. And they all contradict one another at some point or another. So that means, because of these differences, that means they cannot all be true. It's impossible for every system of belief to be true. Now, in John 14, 6, the Lord Jesus pointed out that He alone is the exclusive way to have a relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity. Jesus said, unashamedly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In another place, the Lord Jesus taught that all other systems of belief are dangerously wrong when he said, Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Are you sure that you are on the right way? What do you believe? And what do you believe, is your belief based on? The changing opinions of man? The unreliability of human experience? Or is it based on the unchanging, unchangeable, unalterable Word of God? Now here's what it boils down to, ladies and gentlemen. In the end, it doesn't matter what I want you to believe. and It doesn't matter what you want me to believe. What matters is what God wants us to believe. And His Word reveals to us what He wants us to believe. For example, He wants us to believe that the Bible is His Word that it is inspired, that it is God-breathed, that it is preserved, that he has the power to preserve it from one generation to the next, and he has. He wants us to believe that he can illuminate the word of God in your heart and in your mind, that inspiration, preservation, and illumination. God wants us to believe that about the word of God. He wants us to believe that it is his word. 
He wants us to believe that we're sinners by nature and by practice. For as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. God wants us to believe that. God wants us to believe that our sin separates us from Him. In Isaiah 59, 2, we learn, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. God wants you to believe that. God wants you to believe that He loves you personally, even though you're a sinner. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God wants us uh, to believe that He desires to have a personal relationship with us. He wants to call us His child. He wants us to call, uh, call us His son, His daughter. He wants us to be born again into His likeness and into His image with a body and a soul, a mind, emotion, a will, and a living spirit that allows us to worship God and walk with God and fellowship with God part of His family, the whole kingdom in heaven and in earth, not to be mistaken for the church, as we know, but, you know, He wants us to believe that. He wants to know us personally. He wants us to believe that He became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me state emphatically here that one cannot know God apart from believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. That God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And in that man's body, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, and bodily resurrected from the dead to save all who will trust him alone as their only hope of relationship with God and home in his presence for eternity. And that bodily resurrection is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, we're without hope. Do you know that? That's what the Bible says. See, how do we know? How do we know? How do you know that Christ bodily resurrected from the dead? And some might say, well, because we have the witness of these uh, in, in God's Word. Can I say this without causing some confusion? I hope that doesn't cause confusion. But we don't base our faith, we don't base our belief that Jesus Christ bodily resurrected from the dead because of what they said, but because of the fact that it's in God's book. Because the authority for truth is God's word. You say, well, doesn't the Bible say that in, in one of the Corinthians, didn't Paul say that there were over 500 people that witnessed Christ had resurrected bodily from the dead after he died and was buried? Yes, it does say that, but we don't take their word. We take their witness, but the reason we believe it to be true is because it's in God's word. It is the fixed point of reference where we place our faith because it is truth. It's not based on what somebody else has said, on the changing opinions of man. It's not based on human experience, although when you have Christ, it's an experience. It is based on the unalterable, unchangeable Word of God that cannot change, that will not change, and cannot be changed. Because it is inspired, it is preserved, and it can be illuminated in our hearts by the Spirit of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
See, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God wants us to believe that he wants to put Christ's account on ours and put our account on Christ. That's why Christ went to the cross he became sinful and became sin for us. Christ satisfied the wrath of God by his shed blood, death, burial, and resurrection. That's what God wants us to believe. God also wants us to believe that without Christ, we're headed for destruction and eternal separation from him in a place called the lake of fire. One of the places we find this is in Revelation 21.8 where the word of God says, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murders and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, and then it kind of sums it all up by saying, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone he says, this is the second death. The second death. Death means separation. The first death is when we're separated from time. The second death is when people are separated for eternity. From God. Death and hell, the Bible says, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's when it happens. And death and hell are cast into that place called the lake of fire. And without Christ, that is where a person is headed. You see, there's two types of people in this world. There's only two. Those that have Jesus and those that don't have him. Every person that has Christ is a missionary. Every person that doesn't have Christ is a mission field. That's it, only two. There's only ever two in the word of God. There's the wheat, the tares, the sheep, the goats. You know? We see it all through the scriptures. There are either those that have Christ or they don't have Christ. Without Christ... We're headed for destruction and eternal separation from God. What God says in John 3.18, Jesus said it, he's recorded there. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know God doesn't send anybody to hell? You know that? They're already on their way there. God did send his son so they didn't have to go. That's what God wants us to believe. You say, well, what do you base that on? What is your authority for truth? It's a fixed point of reference, ladies and gentlemen. What do you believe? Whatever it is that you believe, what are you basing that belief on? Basing that belief on what somebody else has told you? Tradition? Words of men, mortal men? By basing your, your belief on an experience that you had? You very well may have had an experience. That's great. I'm glad. I've heard all kinds of experiences. I've heard a, a man that I pled with to receive Christ as a Savior. He didn't see the need for it because God saved him in a foxhole in World War II. Well, that was my experience. God saved me then. But he didn't understand. He was basing his belief on an experience. And not on the unchanging word of God. Are you trusting the human experience? Some, some variable thing as it varies from person to person? You know, I think a lot of people get saved like that, and when they don't have the experience that other people have, they think, I must not be saved. 
There may be people in this room that have experienced that. I didn't cry like that when I got saved. Maybe I'm not saved. Well, the devil likes to use that kind of stuff. I saw a lightning bolt come from heaven. I've heard people say that, and I don't doubt them. I think they really did. But I didn't see a lightning bolt. I guess it's a good thing I'm not based my salvation on an experience, but on the Word of God. Somebody, when I stand before God someday, or when I, I know this doesn't happen this way, but in our minds we can, we can kind of think of it. When I go to the pearly gates someday, so why should I let you in? My first word's out of my mouth better because he said I could. Not because I, but because he. Right? What do you believe? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. There's a hymn of invitation which be given. Obviously, this is a message for the those that have not yet trusted in Christ as their Savior, but I'm sure there's many that are listening today that will listen to this, that have already trusted in Christ alone as their only hope of relationship with God and home in His presence for eternity. But you know, I, I really want to encourage you, if you've already trusted Christ, to really think in those terms, to understand what it is to have authority for truth and then be able to take it and be equipped to share that with somebody else. To take these very things and, and challenge people. Well, why do you believe that? Maybe you'd come today and during the invitation you pray that God give you boldness to, to be a faithful witness, to, to not be afraid, to challenge somebody. Say, well, what are you basing that on? Well, may God help us to do that, be faithful in doing that so that others might recognize that the only authority for truth is the Word of God because it is the only fixed point of reference that we have on this earth, period. Only trust Him. Only trust Him is the song that's playing. If you're listening today, watching, or in the building, you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, what do you believe? What are you basing that belief on? And maybe the Word of God, the Spirit of God would convince you to place your faith and trust in Christ alone. If you'd like to do that, I invite you to come now. I invite you to make contact with me. I'll show you from God's Word how you can, how you can place your faith and trust in Christ and be saved and have authoritative truth behind it so that you don't have to ask the question any longer, what is truth? You, you, can, you can see it for yourself and trust it. Place your faith in it. God help us. The invitation's been given.